say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is The Red Line, where we talk to three expert witnesses about one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. In my travels around many of these countries, I've sat in bars all around the world. And most bars act as neutral ground, an oasis outside of conflict. There's no government versus government, just average people sharing a drink. I've shared tables with Moldovans and Transnistrians, with Georgians and Ossetians, with Russians and Ukrainians, but never two from the conflict we're focusing on this week. This week's conflict is far too venomous, and its hatreds are so deeply ingrained that towns that were once shared by the two sides have had their opposition forced out. In the space of 30 years, we've travelled from an integrated society to entrenched front lines that will land you in prison if you attempt to visit the towns that you once called home. This week, we focus on the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Armenians used to be spread throughout the region, in pockets all over the Middle East, stretching from Syria to the Caucasus, but usually historically without their own state. That was until the Soviet Union took over the region south of the Caucasus, what today would be Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and declared three Soviet republics. Stalin, drawing the borders as he does, gives Armenia a contiguous state, bordering Turkey, Iran, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, but never dealt with the Karabakh problem. Nagorno-Karabakh is an island of ethnic Armenians in the middle of Azerbaijan surrounded and cut off from their homeland. But at the time, this didn't matter, because it was all part of the Soviet Union, and people could travel freely. So the problem lay dormant, like Transnistria, like Gagazia, like the Vagana Valley. Right up until the breakdown of the Soviet Union, and the crumbling of its governments. Ethnic tensions between Armenians and Azerbaijanis, also known as Azeris, reached ahead and in the chaos and the collapse of both sides, Armenia moved militarily to make sure that new fluid borders were drawn to their advantage. The war was bloody and crimes were committed on both sides, but Armenia pushed deep into Azeri territory, taking advantage of the chaos in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. They took the territory to the west of Nagorno-Karabakh, finally connecting their Armenian enclave with the Republic of Armenia, by occupying land owned by Azeris. This is where we stand today, Armenia occupying around a quarter of the Azeri territory, also they can connect their Armenian enclave to the rest of their countrymen, and prevent Karabakh from being surrounded and sieged again. But this is where the conflict froze, with the occasional sniper or shell being thrown at each other, or the occasional hill being fought for or whilst both sides rally their citizens to viscerally detest their neighbours, neighbours they once called friends. Both sides are now so dug in, Armenia refuses to abandon its countrymen inside Azerbaijan, to forfeit its people to a government which has openly threatened to harm them. And Azerbaijan can't just abandon a quarter of its country, including territory full of Azidis, to a government that hates them as well. Both sides have reached this crucial impasse, and only huge action could solve the biggest domestic issue in both of these nations. So now, Azerbaijan is building up its own armed forces, more than we've seen in a long time, and eyeing up what could be a huge win for them, the retaking of Nagorno-Karabakh. The danger in this plan, though, is that both sides are willing to fight to the death and both sides have powerful allies to help them achieve that. So to understand more about this, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. An Island in the Mountains I mean, I think the biggest difference is that the Armenians just bit off more than they could chew. 
and it seemed like a good idea at the time, and now it's coming back to bite them. Svante Cornell is the director for the Institute for Security and Development Policy. He's also the research director for the Central Asian Caucasus Institute and wrote the amazing book, The International Politics of the Armenia-Azerbaijan Conflict. He joins us today. Well, I mean, this is, this is a conflict that's now been with us for practically 30 years. Uh, and it started off as a, as a communal conflict within the Soviet Union, very much as a result of the, uh, the Soviet nationality policies. The anomaly in the conflict, as in many of the conflicts in this region, is that what's on paper the weaker party won territory over a larger party and displaced a lot of people from the larger nations uh, or inhabitants that belong to the larger nation, in this case the Azerbaijanis. And that had to do with the uh, with the weakness of uh, you know emerging statehood in Azerbaijan, but it resulted in a situation which again, as um, not everybody knows, people see the Nagorno-Karabakh area on the map, but obviously the the territory that is controlled by the Armenian side is much larger than that, and where where up uh, several hundred thousand Azerbaijanis lived, which leads me to conclude that the the reason that this conflict is so intractable is twofold. One is that it started off as a communal conflict and then it got gobbled up into the uh, geopolitics involving Russia, Turkey, Iran, and the United States, etc. And the other being that whereas, you know, you could get uh, a reluctant acceptance by, in, in some other territories, of loss of territory, in Azerbaijan that proved impossible because of, because of the size of the uh, displaced people and also of the territory that was lost. Uh, which is, in a sense, the Armenians biting off a large chunk of Azerbaijan but not being able to really chew it. So for people who might not know where it is, can you explain where we find Nagorno-Karabakh on a map? So the uh, that's the, one of the main reasons why this is uh, continues to be an issue, is that the, uh, the South Caucasus, which is where Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia and Azerbaijan are located, is a uh, and has always or for a very long time been a an area of interest for large powers it's the it's the buffer zone if you will between historically the russian turkish and iranian empires today the uh, zones of influence if you like the russians like to use that term and it's also on the um, on the on the route that connects nato territory with uh, with central asia and afghanistan where the south caucasus is really the only little piece of territory that's not controlled by Iran or Russia, which means that it's really the only way that the U.S. or NATO territory countries can get uh, uninhibited access to uh, to the lands east of the Caspian Sea. So what kicked all of this off? What was the match to the kerosene here? Uh, it depends who you ask, obviously. If you ask the Armenians, you'll get one answer. The Azerbaijanis, you'll get another. But if you try to, um, to find the, uh, the most... Um, uh, neutral way of putting it, I think the uh, it goes back to 1924 when a gentleman called Stalin uh, basically drew the boundaries of the South Caucasus, and uh, he in, in the South Caucasus is the only place where Stalin really broke with the theory behind how the Soviet Union was drawing boundaries, and the theory was that each territory, or rather each nation, would get one territory. Uh, if you were a minority within a Soviet Republic, you wouldn't. So for example, there were millions of Russians in Kazakhstan, they didn't have their own Republic. There are millions of Tajiks in Uzbekistan, and so on and so forth. But because there was a Tajikistan, if you were a Tajik minority in Uzbekistan, you wouldn't get your own autonomous territory. Uh, in the South Caucasus, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and a few other places are, are, are the main, the only area where that rule was broken. And in fact, Armenia got two territories. They got the Republic of Armenia and they got the autonomous region of Nagorno-Karabakh. And that created a situation in which nobody is happy. Because on the one hand, the Azerbaijanis are thinking, well, you know, there is an Armenia. Why should these people have a separate standing within our territory? And the Armenians are saying, well, why are the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh separated from Armenia? They should be part of Armenia. And in that way, the Soviet Union really set up a time bomb, if you will, that... Uh, compounded with the economic malaise of the 1970s and 80s in the whole Soviet Union, but particularly in this part of the Soviet Union, started leading to exacerbating ethnic tensions. Then in the late 80s, as soon as you know, Gorbachev opened up the, uh, uh, the, uh, the area of or 
what you could say or think in the Soviet Union without facing repercussions, um, the Armenians started mobilizing for uh, the uh, the return, as they put it, of Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia, and that set off a uh, triggered an, a response by the Azerbaijanis, and eventually um, to the the armed conflict that we've seen um, and that remains unresolved. So right now, Armenia occupies a large portion of Azerbaijan. They occupy most in Nagorno-Karabakh, as well as all the territory west and south of it, about a quarter of Azerbaijan in total. This territory as a whole is referred to as the Republic of Artsakh, which is Nagorno-Karabakh and the occupied Azeri territories combined. So how did Armenia manage to conquer so much Azeri territory whilst having a smaller population? The way this happened uh, was really uh, a result of two very interconnected factors. One was the uh, mayhem in Azerbaijan itself, political mayhem after independence, or during the transition, I should say, to independence, where there, you know, the Soviet regime tried to hold on, there was a nationalist uh, um, revolt against it, the nationalists took power, stayed for a year, and basically lost power after a year to the and there, there was essentially almost a civil war within Azerbaijan. And, you know, when Azerbaijanis were, were busy struggling for who was going to be in power in Baku, the Armenians were able to advance and take territory. And the other uh, factor, of course, is the Russian factor. And those are connected because Russia has always been and continues to manipulate the, the domestic politics of all of these countries. But particularly in the early 90s, they were very adept at doing this. And uh, they were at different times actually supporting the Azerbaijanis and at different times supporting the Armenians. So in the late Soviet period, before independence, Armenia was, so to speak, the rebellious force that wanted to uh, force change, which Azerbaijan didn't. Then the Soviet authorities uh, sided with Baku. Uh, after independence, increasingly, when Azerbaijan moved in a more you know, pro-Western and pro-Turkish direction, Armenia kind of made its peace with Moscow and accepted a vassal status, I would argue, to Russia. Then the Russians leaned uh, on the Armenian side and basically supported them, provided them with weapons and, and training and so on. And what did Russia hope to gain by supporting the Armenians? Well, Russia's uh, ambition, I think, has by now been very overtly stated. It was after the, uh, the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008 that then President Medvedev said that Russia uh, would like to have a sphere of privileged interest in the territory of the former Soviet Union, but not only. And that was his quote. What, what the but not only means, I'll leave to your listeners to guess, but it's a very, the very clearly communicated um, uh, policy of the Russian state has been that a former Soviet territory uh, should be one in which Russia has a predominant influence among any foreign power. And because Russia has been weak and not really been able to, to achieve a position of influence by the use of carrots, what they've had to use is sticks, essentially to, be, uh, to, be, uh, to use conflicts between different peoples, which we see you know, in, uh, in Georgia with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, in uh, Transnistria with Moldova, and in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, as, an, as a lever, if you will, to, uh, to, to be able to... Uh, uh, to maximize its own position as the arbiter of these conflicts and ideally as the as the, the peacekeeper and we have this joke within my line of work where we say that russian peacekeeping is about keeping the pieces of a conflict so if the armenians are so closely tied with moscow who are the azeri governments relying on armenia really is dependent on one state alone and that's russia i mean they have relations with iran they have relations with europe and the us but at the end of the day Armenia's policies, uh, they always have to take Moscow into account. Azerbaijan is slightly different. They started out because of Armenia's close relations with Russia as being the anti-Russian power in the region, very much like Georgia has always been. But over time, they have moderated that because they've seen that really the West and Turkey haven't really been willing or able to, to provide the, the balance that they liked, that they were hoping for. And therefore, they've also kind of made their deals with the Russians, so for example, you know, you have an interesting situation that Russia is supposed to, supposed to be negotiating peace between these uh, two states, but on the other hand, they are selling weapons to both of them, which is usually not what you see a, a wannabe negotiator doing. The difference being that because Armenia is um, is part of several Russian-controlled organizations, they get they get weapons very cheap, and Azerbaijan, thanks to its oil money, has been paying full you know global market prices for the same weapons.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So right now, Azerbaijan has great relations with a number of its neighbors, including Turkey and Turkmenistan. Why is Azerbaijan so successful in improving its international relations, where Armenia usually struggles in this? Oh, I think there are several reasons. The most obvious one is that if you look at a map um, and you look at economic factors, Azerbaijan is the most important country in the region. It's the only one that, that borders both Russia and Iran, which means that if you have to go through the Caucasus in an east-west direction, you can't avoid Azerbaijan. You can go through Georgia or Armenia, but you can't avoid Azerbaijan. So geostrategically, they are the most important. And that's even leaving aside the fact that they have the oil resources that make them an independent power. Thanks to their own financial uh, wealth, they are not really dependent on anybody else. We always say beggars have to, cannot really be choosers. And I think that's tr true with both Armenia and Georgia. They have to choose a, a, an outside protector. Uh, they can't really stand on their own legs. And R Armenia's choice has been to choose Russia, and the uh, Georgians have chosen the West as their protector. Azerbaijan has had the luxury of basically saying, you know, I can get along with everybody, uh, but I stand on my own two legs, and I'm not I don't want to make myself dependent on anybody. I think that's the main reason. So taking into account Baku's close relationship with the Turkish government in Ankara, if Armenia was to push further into Azerbaijan, do you think Turkey would get involved in the war? This is very unpredictable. I mean, sometimes um, we've been toying with scenarios in which, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh becomes kind of like a 1914 scenario in Europe, where different different powers get involved either because they want to or because they see others getting involved. So it's very unpredictable. I would say at this point, uh, you know, it's hard to tell because the Russians and the Turks have had a relationship that's much like a roller coaster. For a while they were friends, then they certainly turned enemies after the Turks shut down a Russian plane over Syria, then they became friends again, and now we're seeing a little bit of trouble in the relationship. But definitely I think the, the Turks are, are, are very much the junior partner in a relationship with the Russians. I think they've made clear to the Russians that they have very strong interest in Azerbaijan and they view Azerbaijan's security as a priority issue. If whether they could, would get involved in a military confrontation with Armenia, we don't know. For the first, what, what happened in 2016 was interesting because that's the first time that the Turks uh, very broadly hinted in that direction. The Erdogan hinted that, you know, they fully supported the Azerbaijani positions and, uh, and were uh, offering help and support to the Azerbaijanis. Whereas before, the Turk, earlier Turkish leaders have been much more circumspect in that. Uh, whether the Russians would get involved, I think, uh, I think that's very, uh, it's very likely at some point that the Russians want to maintain control over any process of escalation in this region. If a conflict escalates, either you impose your will on it or you watch yourself being overruled by events. And I think the Russians would definitely want to make sure that they maintain control over the escalation. So the other enclave we haven't mentioned yet is Najivan. So for people listening, imagine a tall rectangle. That's going to be Armenia. To the east of that is Artsakh, and to the east of that is Azerbaijan and the Caspian Sea. But to the west of Armenia, so the west of our rectangle, smashed between Armenia and Turkey, is a small, disconnected bit of Azerbaijan known as Nachivan. Which to travel to from Azerbaijan, you would have to go around Armenia through Iran, because the Armenians do not allow Azeris through their territory. So in the 1920s, though, the Turkish government signed a treaty with the Soviet Union to guarantee the Azeri rule of Nachivan. So if Armenia was to invade this disconnected patch of Azerbaijan to its west, do you think the Turks would honour that nearly century-old treaty and go to war with Armenia over it? Very likely, I would say. The, the first thing Turkey did after 1992, when the Soviet Union collapsed, was to reinforce this the little bridge connecting them to Nachivan to be able to carry tanks. Uh, and uh, throughout, the, the Turks have a very legalistic um, uh, view of foreign affairs, um, when it suits them, that is. 
so I think there is a, it's more likely than not that the Turks would, would get involved in that type of scenario. Whether that, what, it, what that means, whether that means direct interference, whether it means providing support and supplies to the Azerbaijanis, I don't know. But I think that would, that would be a trigger that would give the Turks a, a it would free their backs, so to speak, in, uh, in arguing that they have a legitimate case for intervening in the conflict. Now, do I think it's likely that the Armenians would do this? Well, uh, probably not. I think that there is a lot of bluster coming from Yerevan that, you know, if there is, a, if there is a, an escalation, we're going to liberate more territories, as I think the Armenian Defense Minister or Chief of Staff put it recently. Uh, I think that's mainly bluster because they know that their military situation has been deteriorating relative to the Azerbaijani ones for a very long time. And I don't think they would take that risk. But if the Turkish were to get involved in this conflict, do you think they would drag the Russians in as well? For the Russians, I think the intervention of Turkey in the conflict would be problematic. But on the other hand, we have to remember that for the Russians, uh, Armenia is, to a certain extent, an end in itself. Influence over Armenia is a goal of Moscow's independently, but it's really a lever against the most important country in the in the Caucasus, Azerbaijan, as well as a lever on Georgia. Uh, so Armenia is the the instrument that Russia has in order to influence the. It's, it's basically their footprint in the region from which they can influence the rest of the region. Now, and the Armenians are very worried that at some point the Russians might cut them off and make a deal with Azerbaijan. Uh, and the Azerbaijanis tell, you know, at very high levels, they keep speaking about how, you know, the Russians are hinting to them that, you know, if you just join the Eurasian Economic Union, we might help resolve the Karabakh conflict in a, in a way that, that is suitable to your interests. And the, the Azerbaijanis have been around long enough to know that the Russians are very good at promising, but not very good at delivering. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that in, in a situation where a conflict is escalating, if the Russians could utilize that escalation to strengthen their influence over Azerbaijan, even if that means acting at Armenia's expense, I would not be surprised if they do that. Which in this case would mean refraining from interfering against Azerbaijan if Azerbaijan gives something up, for example, prohibiting Western flights across the Caspian or whatever, or, or, or whatever it may be that the Russians want at that time. So it's pretty safe to say that in both Armenia and Azerbaijan, this is one of, if not the biggest issue in domestic politics for the country. In fact, in the case of Armenia, five of the last six of their prime ministers have been born in Karabakh, even though Karabakh is not technically part of Armenia. Why is this conflict so important to both sides? I think it's, uh, you know, if you look at the the, uh, the development of post-Soviet politics, these were weak, weak states. And uh, for, for the Armenians, there was actually an Armenian uh, philosophy professor a number of years ago who put it in, in this way when he was asked this question. He said, you know, for Armenia, we really have three pillars of our modern identity, the first Christian nation, the genocide, and the victory in Karabakh. So it's become a, uh, in, in a nation that has been, you know, Armenia basically ceased to exist as a nation uh, almost a thousand years ago. It had been, there had been a great, a great number of large and powerful Armenian states. But with the exception of this little uh, state of Kilikia, which was done by the Mediterranean Sea in, in what today is the border between Syria and Turkey, there was in, the, in, in Eastern Anatolia or in the Caucasus no Armenian state for almost a thousand years. So Armenian history was really about the, right, the righteous people that were continuously defeated. And now suddenly there was a military victory. And this victory has become a, an enormous part of Armenian identity. So how difficult do you think it will be to find a reasonable solution to this conflict? If you look at the insides of a watch with different wheels spinning, uh, well, three levels have to interlock. You have to be able to have a situation where the foreign powers will all accept a solution. Nobody's going to torpedo a solution. You have to have the domestic uh, politics of Azerbaijan and Armenia that allow uh, a solution. And then you have to make sure that the Karabakh Armenians don't torpedo the solution either. Uh, and given that situation, it seems to me that the, um, the likelihood that you're going to get a solution is very low. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. This conflict is a powder keg. Two nations who can't live with the status quo, but also can't go to war without dragging in the great powers. Both sides talk of the other nation like their mortal enemy. But why? Why do these two once cooperative neighbours have such disdain for each other? Well, for that, we turn to our next guest. Part 2. Artificial Venom The most interesting thing to me to begin with was getting to Stepanakert. And to get to Stepanakert from... Armenia, there's no air air links. You can you can't fly in, in into the NKR. So what you have to do is take a bus through uh, what is called the Lachin Corridor. So getting there to begin with was a little bit of an eye opener. It's also um, just very very beautiful country. Once you once you get out of Yerevan and start heading up into the mountains, it's very high terrain. I think that Stepanakert's I don't know, at least 6,000 feet up. And uh, it's just a wild, savage beauty in, in that part of the world. So that, that was um, really impressive. Tyrone Shaw is a professor of writing and literature at Northern Vermont University, reporting and writing books on the histories of the breakaway Soviet republics like Abkhazia and Nagorno-Karabakh. He also wrote the amazing book Bastard Republics, and was a guest on this show previously for our piece on Transnistria. And it's great to have him back on the program. If you if you can imagine Israel pre-1967 war, and then imagine it with the occupied territories, you'll get some idea of what greater Nagorno-Karabakh looks like now. So probably half the landmass is actually the core, the historic center of Nagorno-Karabakh, the rest of it is the so-called security zone. What you're talking about here is a country of a total of 140,000 people to begin with, most of whom, probably 99% of whom, live in the historic center, the original Nagorno-Karabakh. The rest of them are scattered very, very thinly throughout most of the areas of the security zones. So what do these ethnic tensions look like out there in Strapanica, the capital of Artsakh? Well, what happened basically, I think, is that um, under the Soviet Union, until the very end of the Gorbachev era, the ethnic tensions were there, but they were suppressed um, through uh, political machinations, through police enforcement, through any number of ways. That said, the ethnic Armenians and ethnic Azers lived side by side very peacefully for many years um, in Nagorno-Karabakh. So what exactly caused it to unravel? I think it was more specifically ethnic tensions in greater Azerbaijan and in Armenia. If we look at this three-year war, um, the Armenian dead, 4,592. Can I bore you with some numbers? I love numbers. Uh-huh. All right, the Azeri dead, 26,000 to 30,000, and that's an, a rough estimate. The least amount would be 26,000 and possibly more than 30,000. So right away, we're seeing something very strange here in terms of the imbalance of casualties. Armenian civilian dead, 1,264 that we know. We do not know how many Azeri and civilian dead. We know that 25,000 Armenians were wounded, not killed, 60,000 Azeri. We see 325,000 Armenian people displaced in this war and 725,000 Azeris. 
So what this should suggest is what I found there, which was a formerly mixed republic with almost or statistically zero ethnic Azeris left. So what happened to them? And it's a very difficult to get an honest answer. When we asked this question, it was almost as if the lack of, of, of Azeris had never occurred to people. They didn't notice it. Look around and say, oh my God, you're right. Well, you know, the Azeris are nomadic people. That is not an explanation for what happened. We're seeing the forced expulsion of hundreds of thousands of people. Now, the same thing happened to the ethnic Armenians in Azerbaijan. They were forced out. So this, this war disrupted populations of both ethnicities. And what would you say kicked off this war? In 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. And the Soviet Socialist Republics of Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia declared their respective independence. At the same time, Nagorno-Karabakh unilaterally seceded from Azerbaijan, declaring independence in the birth of the Nagorno-Karabakhan Republic. That set off the war. So that, that, that's, that's very clear. The Azers said, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. Now, one of the questions would be, why is Nagorno-Karabakh so vital to the Azerbaijanis? What's so important about it? Natural resources would be one answer, including gold. It also has a, a strategic interest for pipelines running from the oil fields in Azerbaijan through to Europe. And they were going to be running right through the NKR. In any event, the ceasefire happened in 1994, and it was brokered by Russia. And this is where we stand today. We've got a ceasefire broken repeatedly by both sides in the security zones. And so the situation, while frozen, is still volatile. President Aliyev of Azerbaijan had some pretty tough words regarding this conflict a few years ago. Can you tell us what the Azeri government's official position towards Artsakh is? Here's what he said, by the way. And this was... Um, um, Aliyev in, in March of 2010. Any status in Nagorno-Karabakh outside Azerbaijan is out of the question. It will not happen. Neither tomorrow nor in a hundred years. Never. We cannot accept it and it is our position of principle. Nagorno-Karabakh will never be granted independence. Well, that may be. They weren't granted, but they took it. And they're living in this twilight status of an unrecognized republic. Some of these towns in Artsakh, like Shusha, used to be majority Azeri. What are they like today? During the war, Azeris occupied this town because it was ethnically majority Azerbaijani, which is unusual in that part of the world. But this was a majority Azer community. It is no longer. But during that war period, the capital was shelled. It was besieged for two years. Um, artillery would rain down on the Armenians in Stepanakin. In 1989, there were 5,000 Armenians living in Shushi, and there were 16,000 Azeris. This was a flourishing market town. In 2010, total population of Shushi, 2,000, uh, 0 Azeris. Again, this is what ethnic cleansing looks at looks like up close. There's no other way to put this. But when you ask people where are all the Azeris, they would just kind of look around and shrug and say, Well, you know, they're nomads. Which is surreal. one of the most symbolic differences, you look at the mosque in Shushi and it's a it's a ruin. And you look at the Orthodox Church, which is new and glistening and basically like a cathedral. And that in itself tells a lot of the story. So who are the people that we found in Shushi? Most of them 
uh, were from other places who were granted homesteader rights, essentially, if they would come in <clears throat> and repopulate the town. These are people that came from elsewhere and eking out an existence in bombed out apartment flats that are hastily put back together with, with, with cement and patching plaster. But there's no real, there's no real economy there. And we were told by a member of the legislature when we, when we interviewed that person that a lot of the money that's keeping the whole show afloat is coming from the Armenian diaspora around the world. And there are a lot of Armenians that fled, <clears throat> excuse me, that fled Iran, for example, um, in the early 1980s, right after 1979, in fact. A lot of um, ethnic Armenians from Iran are now living in, in, in Armenia, and especially in Yerevan, and there are a number of these also now in Shushi. So this is essentially a bombed-out town with very little of its original infrastructure left. It looks like a devastated war zone, and it's entirely populated by Armenians. We visited with a number of families. There's a school there. I'm thinking of the family of Mikhail and Novart Sarkisian, and their kids, Laura, Susie, Narek, and Arthur, who um, is some semblance of normalcy. And what uh, Mikhail said is, Partially, maybe we're here just uh, as, as, as human shields, but against what, who knows, except he said, if the Azeris come for us, we'll be ready for them. This whole area is, is so displaced, and remember that most of the population lives in Stepanaka. The rest are spread through, thinly throughout other areas. So it's kind of heartbreaking looking at at Shushi, which at one point you could enough was left, you could tell this was a beautiful place, a thriving commercial place, with agriculture, with uh, textile industries, and it's all in ruins now, or at least it was. But how dedicated are those who are living in Artsakh to the cause? Will they fight if the Azeris come back for the territory? That is my impression. They will never accept. Consider what they sacrificed to get to where they were. They totally rejected control by, army, by, by Azerbaijan, and they, they lost 5,000-plus lives in the process of securing whatever shaky status they now have. If Azerbaijan tried to go back in militarily in any serious way, we would have another full-scale war. And how long do you think the fighting would last? I think it'll last as long as Moscow wants it to. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Moscow is pulling many of the strings in this area, playing peacemaker or peacebreaker to both sides. Moscow knows how important control of this region is. In Azerbaijan, it offers Moscow a direct rail route to Iran, oil influence in Turkey, a port on the Caspian, and potential pressure points against Georgia. Armenia offers Moscow incredibly strategically placed airfields and army bases, pressure on Turkey's east, and recognition in Russia's international affairs. Right now, Russia plays both sides for advantage. But Turkey's starting to muscle in on that game, to the detriment of Moscow. So will this small Middle Eastern conflict drag in Russia and NATO member Turkey to conflict? Well, to find out more about that, we turn to our next guest. Part 3. Baked into the Cake when you visit Karabakh, I guess you begin to understand why it's such an important place for two communities, for Armenians and for Azerbaijanis. It's this lovely uh, oasis of green um, between two quite arid landscapes. So on the one side, you've got the plain of Azerbaijan. On the other side, you've got the Armenian mountains. 
and in the middle you've got this lovely territory with all these uh, agricultural land with woods um, all these beautiful armenian churches um, and so it's it's very remote but it's also very beautiful and you begin to understand spending some time there why this small patch of territory matters to two people at once thomas deval is a british journalist and writer best known for his book black garden armenia and azerbaijan he's also a senior fellow for carnegie europe specializing in the caucasus black sea and ukrainian regions and he joins us today if you look at a coin from azerbaijan i think you begin to understand a lot um on the back of an azerbaijani coin is not the queen's head or some kind of national symbol it's the map of the country um, it's the physical contours of modern azerbaijan and of course that for them includes uh, this lost territory of nagorno karabakh um, and i think you begin to understand that they feel as, as though a big chunk has been bitten out of their country with the loss of this territory um, it's the this famous city of Shusha. It's also uh, a place um, in which sheep farmers used to come and uh, graze their herds in the summer. They would be in the plains down below, uh, Azerbaijani plains in the winter and come up in the summer. And they've all been cut off from their pastures. Um, it's also a route uh, west to towards uh, Turkey and obviously towards Armenia. But I think, um, so it's of economic importance to Azerbaijan, but I think above all, it's of kind of symbolic importance that this is a place that they feel belongs to them and has, has been kind of taken away from them, stolen from them as a result of this conflict. So in your opinion, why is Armenia so keen to hold on to this territory? For Armenians, it's the kind of eastern outpost of their civilization. It's full of old Armenian churches, it's of great cultural significance for them. And for the last few hundred years, it's had a significant Armenian population. So again, losing Armenians say that losing Karabakh for them would be a bit like um, losing what they regard as Western Armenia all over again, uh, losing a significant territory. They lost Western Armenia, which is um, Eastern Turkey, basically in 1915. and um, its population was either murdered or displaced, um, and they feel that this would be a kind of second genocide for them if they were to lose uh, this other Armenian territory to the east. Noting the recent expansion of the Azeri military, do you think Baku has the capability to retake Nagorno-Karabakh by force? It's a very small territory. Um, it's only, you know, um, 100 miles uh, east to west, probably. Um, it's um, with a small population. So one looks at the map and you see the, the massive arms build up by Azerbaijan and you think, you know, they might be tempted to have a big military push to take this place back. But then you look at the butts and the butts are one, um, this is mountainous terrain. Um, the Azerbaijani forces would basically have to fight uphill to take this place. Secondly, it's heavily defended by uh, the Armenians with all these uh, layers and layers of, of, of defense and also lots of weapons, including maybe some cruise missiles. And also, um, you have to understand that now 100% of that population is now Armenian. So they'd be taking back a territory where the entire population would be resisting. So that's why, uh, on the one hand, Azerbaijan's a much richer country thanks to its oil revenues. It's built up its uh, army and its military and, and acquired heavy weapons. On the other hand, they'd be facing a adversary who would fight to the last breath um, to defend this territory and, uh, and also have quite significant defenses of their own. Uh, that's why when people say there's no, there's no military solution to this conflict, uh, what they're saying is, well, there could be another war, but it would be extremely bloody. Probably thousands of people would die um, fighting over this small territory. And we'd basically, of course, be back to square one in that this would still remain a disputed territory, even if the Azerbaijanis managed to take it back. Noting the center of Azerbaijan is quite flat, and Armenia is taking large stockpiles of Russian weapons, 
Do you think Armenia has the capability to push further into Azerbaijan? I think the Armenians don't really want to push further into Azerbaijan. They've already taken partially or wholly uh, seven regions of uh, Azerbaijan around Karabakh, which is obviously even more controversial than, than possessing Karabakh uh, itself. This kind of buffer zone outside Karabakh, which had a big Azerbaijani population, all of whom have been uh, expelled from that region. Um, this is not disputed territory. This is 100% Azerbaijani territory that they possess. So the Armenians are a bit on a rather on shaky ground here um, in the fact that they control not just uh, the land that they historically claim to be theirs, which is Karabakh with all its Armenian culture, but also surrounding areas of, of Azerbaijan, uh, which never belong to them. They, they now militarily occupy, uh, which is to say that, that um, they'd be even worse advice to go on and push further into Azerbaijan. I think the international backlash would, would be enormous. With Ankara being a major supporter of the Azerbaijani government and Moscow being a major supporter of the Armenian, how likely do you think it would be that either of these nations would get involved in the conflict if it went really hot again? Um, I think it's basically a local conflict um, in which very much uh, the tail wags the dog geopolitically, as we say, in which uh, this conflict causes more headaches and more problems to the surrounding regions and the big countries than those big countries are the cause of the problem or want to be involved. Uh, Russia and Turkey, sure, they sometimes uh, fight. They've historically fought maybe a dozen wars over the Black Sea over the last two or three hundred years. Um, you know, all over that region, you can find war memorials of from Turks who've died in Russia and, and Russian, Russians who've died in Turkey and so on. Uh, for Turkey, um, if this conflict were to be solved, it would open up communication routes uh, from Turkey across to the Caspian Sea. Um, a major headaches would, would, would be resolved. They would, have, they would get relations with Armenia. The, the Armenian diaspora would maybe would get a bit more off their back. Russia is a bit more of a mysterious player in this conflict. Um, they certainly have uh, friends on both sides, more on the Armenian side, but also on the Azerbaijani side as well. They kind of like to play a bit both sides. Um, and some people say that Russia is kind of deliberately cultivating this conflict and doesn't really want to get it solved. That may be the case, but I, I don't think Russia would stand in the way of a genuine attempt by Armenia and Azerbaijan to solve this conflict. I think Russia could use a resolution of this conflict also for some good purposes as far as it was concerned to open up railway connections down to uh, to Turkey and Iran, uh, to have new railway connections uh, to Armenia. Uh, the Russians own the Armenian railway system. That would be useful if the, those borders open. So I think there are, there, there are different Russian interests in this conflict as well. I think it's best seen as a kind of local conflict, uh, which the two sides fight passionately and they kind of try and draw in their, their friends and neighbors on their behalf. So where does Georgia sit in all of this? Georgia tries to stay out of the conflict, but um, they're a bit closer to Azerbaijan. Georgia's very uh, reliant on Azerbaijan as a major energy source, particularly of its gas, um, railway connections. Um, so, the Georgians try and keep up more or less friendly relations with, with the Armenians, but they're a bit a bit closer to the Azerbaijanis. So quite notably, we haven't spoken about the US yet in this piece. Is there a particular side the US supports or are they just staying out of this one? The US wouldn't, I think, favor one side or the other. They have um, the Armenians lobby is obviously very strong in the US. The Armenians have lots of good friends in senior places in Congress, people like Adam Schiff, well-known from the impeachment process, is a big friend of Armenia from California. Uh, but the Azerbaijanis also have friends in, in Washington uh, because of the energy connections, because of uh, the military overflights to Afghanistan and so on. So both sides have friends in the US. Uh, in the past, the US was more involved. Back in 2001, the US convened a summit on this conflict in Key West in Florida, where both presidents, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, 
attended. It was one that kind of more serious attempts to, to resolve this conflict. When that fell apart and when, you know, Colin Powell, as he then was Secretary of State, um, went away disappointed from that meeting, I think the US has kind of downgraded its interest and moved on to some other things. And of course, 9-11 followed not long after that that summit. Um, I think I think there are too many conflicts in the world. This one is just too intractable that, that, that people take one look at it and say, okay, we'll invest a modest amount of diplomatic effort in it. But if, if we don't really see a serious intention by the two major parties to the conflict to do something, we're not going to get ahead of them. We're, gonna, we're not going to tell them uh, to make peace if they're not serious about making peace themselves. Both Armenia and Azerbaijan used this conflict heavily to rally supporters for domestic politics. Do you think ending the conflict may take away one of the best vote winners in Yerevan and Baku and force them to focus on other more pressing issues? I think that's a really good point. I think um, both governments and leaders say they want this conflict resolved, but, but for one thing, the compromises they would have to make would, would look like a national betrayal to large bits of the public, and that would make them very unpopular. Uh, and secondly, uh, as you say, they instrumentalize this conflict, um, you know, particularly in Azerbaijan, um, when there are complaints about human rights in Azerbaijan, Azerbaijani popula- uh, politicians like to say, but what about the human rights of our refugees? Uh, when the opposition complains about, uh, about some human rights abuses in Azerbaijan, the government says, you know, we're still a nation at war. You could, um, how dare you criticize the government? So if, if uh, it is useful in a, in a way to keep this conflict on a kind of slow burning flame, not, not a high burning flame uh, for, for governments in, in both uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, which means that it, they can get a bit of domestic legitimacy out of it uh, and kind of keep the opposition off balance. How far do you think the friendship between President Erdogan of Turkey and President Aliyev of Azerbaijan extends when it comes to this conflict? Turkey supports uh, the Azerbaijani military, sends trainers, sends weapons. Uh, so they're quite sympathetic and there's quite a, uh, despite their very different personalities, I think Erdogan and Aliyev are quite close now politically. Uh, but it's definitely not in Turkey's interest for this conflict to restart. They've got masses of, of problems pretty much on every border. So they like to kind of support Azerbaijan politically, rhetorically, but there's, I think, no way that they would really like to see this, this, this conflict start seriously again. So the two leaders of Azerbaijan and Armenia met in Munich recently for another round of talks. Was there anything achieved in Munich? The meeting in the Munich Security Conference back in February was quite a disaster, to be honest. There was a panel chaired by Celeste Wallander from the US in which the two presidents were invited. Uh, and basically, they just mouthed off and voiced all the kind of old prejudices and myths and, and uh, very one-sided historical versions of the conflict, um, which they were kind of, you know, uh, addressing their own publics much more than they were talking to each other. So. Uh, in private, I think they have some useful conversations, but um, I think that meeting was one a sign how difficult it is to uh, resolve this this conflict because the kind of public messaging is, so, is still so strong. The the myth making about this conflict is is so strong, and two, I guess that that really there's not much in it for them to talk compromise. It's much easier for them um, to talk the hard line. Is there any sort of compromise these two leaders could reach that wouldn't cause huge domestic political blowback? Uh, I think you've put your finger on it there. I I think it's incredibly difficult to think of a compromise in which uh, Armenians give up what they've won um, in this conflict over 20, 25 years. Um, The land that they've claimed, the kind of self-rule for Karabakh that they have, uh, they would feel incredibly insecure letting Azerbaijan back into those lands. Uh, and for Azerbaijan, it's it's a sacred cow, the territorial integrity of the country, the fact that Azerbaijan 
day Yuri exists on the map where that territory is incredibly important for them. So just to, to give up a bit of their internationally recognized territory is also incredibly difficult. Um, there are probably ways of selling that to your public, um, but it's much, much easier not to do that and just, you know, just to kind of turn out the same old message and, and, and carry on rather than engage in, in serious compromise. Do you think there ever could be a real solution with the current leadership on both sides? I think there's a lot that could happen in this conflict. Um, and I think a change of leadership on both sides uh, is probably a necessary precondition for that to happen because you definitely see that the Armenian leadership, um, which came to power in 2018, is not from Karabakh. They're less, uh, they probably prepared to think a bit more creatively. They didn't fight in the war. Whereas uh, the current president of Azerbaijan, Ilham Aliyev, is the son of Haydar Aliyev, who, who fought in the war. Um, they've, you know, made so many statements and speeches over the war, over the years, which are hostage to fortune. Um, and it's very hard to see them kind of going against everything that they, they've said over the last 15, 20 years. So um, I, I don't see this uh, conflict being solved for, for many, many years. And I do believe that probably it is up to the next uh, generation to sort it out, not this one. Both sides have poured so much venom and rhetoric into this conflict, and now neither side could ever hope to back down with any grace. It has become the centerpiece of every policy in both nations, a mutual enemy to rally your people around. The trouble now lies in the stalemate, as each side makes bold promises to solve the conflict with force, a promise they both know is impossible without the help of their allies. Back as Russia and Turkey openly support their respective sides, but neither really want to start World War III over this small patch of hills. But sometimes conflicts have a way of slipping out of our control. With this web of geopolitics, sometimes we have pulled in directions we don't want to go, for the sake of our allies and strategic goals. We can only hope though that cooler heads will prevail, and the rolling snowball of war doesn't gain speed in the hills of Nagorno-Karabakh. Thank you so much to all of you for listening. It means so much to have so many people reach out to the show and chat, email, or simply suggest stories. It makes it all feel incredibly worthwhile to hear such great feedback from you guys, and I honestly can't thank you enough. If you want to support the show, you can donate to our Patreon. This month, we'll finally be kicking off our private Patreon sessions starting a small think tank for you to submit your questions as well as chat with other Patreons. The aim of this is if you have a burning geopolitical question, you can submit it and I'll go through my diary and find the perfect expert to answer that question for you, connecting your question with our wide network of experts. I am also thrilled to say that through your fantastic donations, we have managed to bring Nick Much onto the Redline team. He'll be helping with the writing and the print version of the show. Nick is an absolutely amazing get for the program, has broken some of the biggest stories around, including Russian Brexit funding and the war in Ukraine. We cannot thank Nick enough for coming on board, and this is all thanks to our amazing Patreons. If you want to support the show as well and join the think tanks, get the transcripts and all the other bonuses, you can visit our website, www.theredlinepodcast.com, and then click the support the show button. You can also support the show by following us on social media at at the Red Lion Pod or myself on Twitter at Mike Hilliard Oz, where we share maps, stats and great articles from experts around the globe. A huge thanks to our fantastic guest this week. You can follow Svanti on Twitter at Svanti Cornell and I highly recommend you check out his book, The International Politics of the Armenia-Azerbaijan Conflict. It was a big part of the research for this episode and it was fantastic to have him on. Having Tyrone back on the show was great, and I'm glad to call Tyrone a friend. His book, Bastard Republic, was probably my favorite book of last year, and is available on Amazon at the moment. You can also hear more from Tyrone from our sixth episode on the breakaway Soviet Republic of Transnistria, and we look forward to working with him again on a story in the future. Thomas Duval is the biggest expert in the field on this subject. When we went looking for guests, he was the top suggestion from almost every one of our friends of the show. 
It was fantastic to have him on the program. And if you want to follow his Twitter, you can find him at Tom underscore Duval or check out his book, Black Garden, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Once again, a huge thanks goes out to Mark Spencer for doing the extra vocals in this episode. We are so happy to have him on staff in amongst all of his other amazing projects. Until next time, though, thank you so much for listening and we'll be back in a fortnight with another international episode. But for now, thank you and good night. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 